0: Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. My name is Ed Knoll. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to say Happy Father's Day to all of you men. Uh, we're thankful for each one of you and the way that you lead your families. I want to thank you for joining us for Park and Praise this morning. We're going to continue in our series on the Gospel of Mark. We've been getting to know Jesus better by looking at His life, by looking at His interactions with His followers and with the religious and the political leaders of that time period, and by hearing his teaching, which is as valid today as it has ever been. The message is titled, Jesus' Farewell Prophecy. We'll be studying Mark 13, verses 1 to 23. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Mark 13. Uh, The first part of this is called the, the Olivet Discourse, and it's so named because it was delivered from the Mount of Olives, which is just across the Kidron Valley, and up above Jerusalem. Preaching on this chapter of the Bible requires a humble approach. Uh, and these are the reasons. First, because in almost every verse, there are multiple allusions to both Old Testament and other Jewish apocalyptic literature. Secondly, it's difficult because of the nature of this prophecy, which often has a short-term as well as a long-term fulfillment. That is, the short-term sometimes foreshadows or leads to the ultimate fulfillment, which I believe is the case here. And finally, it's difficult to preach because there's not a consensus among Christian commentators as to its interpretation. So, we will keep G.K. Chesterton's famous quote in mind, It is only the fool who tries to keep the heavens inside his head, and not unnaturally his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. So that'll be my approach, as I'll try to make every effort to keep things as simple and as straightforward as possible. I'm going to emphasize the instructions that Jesus gave his disciples as they entered into an incredibly troubled time in their lives. And when I say trouble, I mean more troubled than the world had ever seen up until that time. Jesus' instructions here have application for us today as our nation is roiling with the pandemic with economic uncertainty and unemployment, and with racial and political unrest. So here are three instructions that Jesus gave his disciples, and then we'll flesh those out. In verse 5, Jesus says, See to it that no one leads you astray. Secondly, beginning in verse 7, he says, Do not be alarmed, and elsewhere he says, or don't be anxious. And then in verse 13, he says this, Persevere to the end. Remain faithful to the gospel. So let's read the first 13 verses of our text this morning, Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. and rumors of wars do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray for the reading of the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to be outside, to be together, to have our families together to have this church family together. Lord, help us to hear from you this morning. Help me to preach effectively. Help all of us to hear from you and to understand your word and then to put it into practice. Help us to obey you, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The temple in Jerusalem was a magnificent structure. It had been under construction under King Herod, for 46 years when Jesus arrived at the temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote this, The whole of the outer works at the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration, for it was completely covered with gold plates, which when the sun was shining on them glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholder, not less than one gazed when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. On the other side, the blocks of marble were of such a pure white that to strangers who had never previously seen them, from a distance, it looked like a mountain of snow. So Jesus is now walking out of this magnificent temple complex for the last time when one of his disciples, we don't know which one, remarked, at the beauty of the temple and the beauty of its stones... And it was beautiful, and it was massive. The temple complex covered 35 acres. The temple itself was 150 feet high, and the columns that held it up were so massive that three large men could barely encompass it with their fingertips. Some of the stones that made up the temple were 60 feet long, 11 feet high, and 8 feet deep. These stones weighed about a million pounds. So the temple was massive. It was well built. It looked like it would last for centuries. But it wasn't just huge and beautiful. To the Jews, it represented the beauty of Israel's culture, the glory of God's presence, and the permanence of the Jewish religion. So when Jesus says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down It must have seemed impossible to the disciples. By the way, this prophecy is further proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Who would even imagine that a structure like this would be completely destroyed? But it was. In A.D. 70, when the Romans put down a Jewish rebellion, the temple was set on fire. That melted the gold. The gold then ran down in between the stones into the cracks between the stones. And the Roman soldiers then tore down each stone in an attempt to get the gold. God used human avarice. He used greed to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus had spoken. Then, Jesus answers two questions from two sets of brothers, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When? That's what they want to know. When is the question that fascinates men. But it seems to me that when is often the question that gets us into trouble when we read the Scriptures. For 20 centuries, men have been asking this question. And for 20 centuries, men have been anticipating that the second coming of Christ would be in their own time. Every generation has thought, Jesus is coming back during our time. Because of the signs, which they saw misunderstood in the immediate events of the day. So Jesus answers them, and this is what I believe Jesus is saying, that there will be two judgments to come at two different times. He answers their question about the temple coming down, but he is looking far, far into the future, to the ultimate event in history, his return in glory and power on what Scripture calls that great day. It seems to me that the judgment that would befall, that did befall Jerusalem in A.D. 70, was a type or a foreshadowing of the great day of judgment at the end of days. There is a great fascination with end times predictions in our day with the publication of books like The Late Great Planet Earth or The Left Behind series. There's even a website called raptureready.com. That purports to be, and I'm not kidding, the Dow Jones Industrial Average of End Times Activity. They also refer to their site as the prophetic speedometer. The higher the number on the Rapture Ready website, the faster we are moving, in their opinion, to the pre-tribulation rapture. But Jesus has other priorities for his disciples. He doesn't seem to be interested in setting dates. He is speaking to them pastorally. He's speaking to them as their rabbi, their teacher, their pastor. And he's telling them how they are to respond when these things that they're going to have to endure are coming in verses 5 and 6. His first priority is this. No one should lead them astray. He warns them about false teachers and false messiahs who will try to lead people astray. Dr. Charles, Dr. Charles Feinberg A noted Jewish Christian scholar says that in the course of Israel's history, since the time of our Lord, 64 different individuals have appeared claiming to be the Messiah. So Jesus was correct. Many shall come saying, I am the Messiah. I am he. In the years preceding the Jewish revolt, several messianic pretenders arose. In the mid-40s, a man named Theudas boasted of various signs that he was able to accomplish including the ability to part the Jordan River, he led many people astray. Josephus has another account about an Egyptian man who claimed to be a prophet who succeeded in deceiving people. Their powers and their supposed credentials gave some the impression that they were the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus' second major message to his disciples and to us is this. Do not be alarmed. Yes, there will be wars, earthquakes, nations rising against nations. There will be famines, but do not be deceived into thinking that that marks the end. These things will and must take place, but they're not the signs of the Lord's return. Natural catastrophes will continue as they always have. Wars will continue, but that's not the end. Will Durant wrote, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization or democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have not been marked by war. So wars are not a harbinger of the end times, they are a constant. And yet, World War I, World War II, even the great earthquake, 1906 in San Francisco, were said to be signs that the end was near, but the end was not near. So do not be alarmed. The purpose of Jesus' litany of woes that were to come is not to tempt believers into speculations about the end, but to call them to be watchful, to be looking for the return of Christ, and to be ready to be working. Jesus then addresses specifically the things that are going to happen to the disciples in the coming years as they go about spreading the gospel to the whole world. They're going to be brought before kings and councils. They're going to be beaten in synagogues and put on trial. They're not to be anxious. So, well, that sounds like that would warrant being anxious. But they're not to be anxious because God will give them the words to say. And most importantly of all, The gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations. When when the disciples are dragged before kings and councils, that means they are impacting these communities. Else they would be ignored. But here's what matters. The good news will be preached. Jesus came to preach the good news to the captives and to set them free. Jesus persevered at the end of his life with a perfect faith. And God will use both the persecution of Christ and the persecution of his church to spread the gospel to all the nations. He will use the perseverance of his saints in the face of adversity to advance the gospel all over the world. This section of our text ends with these words. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We are not to be blown away by the persecutions of the church. We are to persevere. The Christian life, as often said, is not a sprint. It is a marathon. Or as Eugene Peterson put it so beautifully, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. That's what God commands, and that's what he provides, because God does provide what he commands. So, review of the first part here. These are the things that God would have us to remember about these first 13 verses. First, be on your guard and see to it that you are not led astray by false teachers. What that means is you and I must know what the Scriptures say. We can be easily led astray if we do not know what God's Word says. So we must be diligent to study the Bible so that, as Ephesians 4 says, we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes Second thing we need to know Do not be alarmed when things are difficult Jesus tells us that these things must occur when nations are at war when earthquakes and famines occur Jesus does not say Don't care about these things Or don't be involved in relieving the suffering that happens during these things. That's not what he says. But he does say, do not be alarmed. God is in control. And then third, persevere to the end. Don't be surprised when even good men and women die because of their faith in Jesus. Don't be surprised. Persevere to the end. And take Jesus' message of peace with God through faith in Christ to your neighborhood, to your family, to the nations. Fathers, preach it to your children, even today. Then Jesus says this in verses 14 to 23. I want to read it for you. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Cut short the days. No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now the heading in many of our Bibles over this section, verses 14 and 23, is the abomination of desolation. There are a good number of differing scholarly opinions about the precise meaning of the term, the abomination of desolation, but almost all agree that it refers to some kind of pagan desecration of God's temple. Matthew tells us in his account that it refers to a vision given to Daniel by Gabriel in Daniel chapter Nine, in which Daniel talks about a desolating sacrilege that will be set up in the temple and will defile God's holy place. Some believe that it refers to the evil emperor Caligula's attempt to erect a statue of himself on the temple grounds in AD 40. First century historian Josephus believed it was fulfilled when Titus conquered the Jews and then destroyed the temple in 8070. But in any case, when God's people see it, they are to flee to the hills. R.C. Sproul said this Jesus advised his disciples, in verse 14, upon seeing this abomination, to flee to the mountains. This advice was contrary to the conventional wisdom in the ancient world. In times of invasion, people fled not to the mountains, but they fled to the walled cities. Which were regarded as the safest places. That's what happened when the Romans invaded and placed Jerusalem under siege. Jerusalem was packed with people fleeing from the countryside. When Jerusalem fell to the Romans, 1.1 million Jews were killed. However, the Christians were not among them. They had taken note of what Jesus said and they had fled to the hills. But this fleeing to the mountains in verses 15 to 18 by those who had paid attention to what Jesus said, it had to happen quickly. They were not to stop and take even a cloak. And for those who belonged to Jesus, their flight to the hills contributed to the survival of the early church and to the spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But then listen, verses 19 and 20. For in those days... There will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. The horrors that Jesus predicted took place in AD 70. Over a million Jews are killed. I'm not going to enumerate the awful things that happened to those people, but nothing like it had ever happened before. This is one of the reasons that God's Word is so important to us, because in it, God tells us how to live and how to watch for the signs of the times. But it also seems to me that the abomination of desolation is both past and future. That is, that the destruction of the temple was a forerunner, containing the same essential elements as the great tribulation that will come at the end of time. Jesus then warns them in verses 21 and 22 once again about false Christs who are trying to lead people astray. They're going to show up when the Lord until the Lord returns. Jesus' final words in this section are in verse 23: "Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand." I want to close with a story. Uh, Jesus' words and his farewell prophecy make A big difference during the most trying of times. Here's an example from the great 20th century preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse from 10th Pres up in Philadelphia. Barnhouse had been preaching in Scotland in the summer of 1939 while his family vacationed in southern France. He decided to make a quick trip from Scotland to France to visit his family before returning to Belfast to preach. On his way out of Britain, he was warned that he might not be able to return in time to preach on Sunday. Europe was in turmoil and there were rumors of war. Hitler was threatening to march on Danzig. The official who stamped Barnhouse's passport said, don't forget, I warned you. Just a few days later, Hitler invaded Poland and all flights back to England were canceled. Dr. Barnhouse had to make a a slow overland journey to Paris and then on to the coast of France, where he would catch a ferry to England. Everywhere he went, there was turmoil, and there were signs of the coming battle. The signals used those days were church bells, and they were ringing to alert people to the danger that was coming. Trains were packed with soldiers being called up for the war. Some of the towns through which they traveled would soon be destroyed by the bombing. Barnhouse crossed the English Channel late at night, and while he was visiting the ship's captain, the radio reported that the Prime Minister had issued Germany an ultimatum. Unless the Nazis withdrew from Poland, Britain would go to war. Barnhouse was on the last civilian steamship across the English Channel until the war was over. He arrived in London, which was just as chaotic as Paris had been. The railway platforms were lined with children being evacuated to the countryside, Many of them were crying, some of the first victims of the war. Barnhouse crossed the countryside by train and then he took a night train up to Northern Ireland and by the time he reached Belfast, it was 3 o'clock in the morning and he only had a few hours to get some rest before the morning worship service. When he arrived, the church was packed with everyone expecting the declaration of war to be announced at any time. The church's pastor was only too happy for Barnhouse to preach, and he kept saying, Thank God you're here. I don't know what to say. I pray that God will give you something to say to the lads. This may be the last sermon that some of them ever hear. Then, just as Barnhouse was getting ready to step into the pulpit, one of the elders slipped a note to the pastor. It said, No reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. Barnhouse began his sermon by telling the congregation that he had the perfect text for them that morning. A text first spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ as a command to his people. It's in our text today. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. He then recounted the horrible experiences that he had witnessed on his way to Belfast, and as he described the terror, He stopped and repeated his text, do not be alarmed. The siren will sound and the soldiers will mobilize, do not be alarmed. Millions of homes will be broken up, do not be alarmed. Children will be torn from their mothers and their cries will represent the wails that are going up all over the world. But Jesus said, do not be alarmed. As Barnhouse went through this litany of lamentation, he's piling monstrous grief on top of horror. The tension in the church is mounting. Finally, Barnhouse stopped and said, these words, do not be alarmed, are either the words of a madman or they're the words of God. And then he shook his fist heavenward and cried out, oh God, unless Jesus Christ is God, these words are the most horrible that could be spoken to men who have hearts that can weep. And they can be gripped by human suffering. Men are dying. Do not be alarmed. Children are crying in their misery with no beloved face in sight. Do not be alarmed. How can Jesus say such a thing? Then Barnhouse gave the answer. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord of history. He is the God of detailed circumstance. Nothing has ever happened without God knowing it. The sin of man has reduced the world to passion and fury. Men tear at each other's throats, yet in the midst of the history in which Jesus is Lord, everyone who believes in him will know the power of his resurrection and will learn that no event, however terrible, can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in closing, how does all of this relate to us today? Men are tearing at each other's throats in the streets of America's cities, on social media, on our airwaves. It's happening right now, and our text could not be more relevant. What does Jesus say? He says, be on your guard. Make sure that no one leads you astray. These things will and must take place. The end is not here yet. Do the most important thing. Preach the gospel. Fathers and mothers, preach the gospel to your children. Preach the gospel in your neighborhood. Love your neighbors. And then Jesus says, do not be alarmed. Why not? Why not be alarmed? Because there's not a sparrow that falls from the sky without God knowing about it. And are we not more valuable than they? So do not be alarmed. God is in control. And when things are at their darkest point, whether it's in our nation or in your personal life, if you have faith in Jesus, you have a Savior who has endured every temptation and trial in the world, and yet he has remained without sin. He died. He gave up his life and was raised from the dead for you. And you cannot be separated from him if you have faith in him. He loves you with an everlasting love. So be on your guard. Guard your heart and your mind in Christ. Do not be alarmed. God is with you. Persevere in the faith. Preach the gospel to the end of your life, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the sun that has come out. Thank you for your magnificent love for us. Thank you that you are the Lord of history, that nothing escapes your notice. Thank you that all of your plans for us are for good and not for evil. Thank you that for those who love you, you are working all things together for the good. Lord Jesus, help us during this time. Help us as a church to be effective in reaching our community. Help us as individuals and families to be effective in reaching our neighborhoods. Help us to minister to the poor, Lord, to be generous toward them during this time. And, Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Help us, Lord, to give you the glory by acknowledging that you are our God and that you are faithful And that you will never fail us. Help us, Lord, to give you the glory of knowing that you are our God. That nothing can separate us. Not height, nor depth. Nothing. No power. No principality can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this group of folks who have come out this morning to worship you. Bless their day. Bless the fathers this day. Give them grace to lead their families well. And We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.